This is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. This week I talk with young Canadian filmmaker Brad Abrahams. His recent documentary, Love and Saucers, came out a bit over a year ago, and I loved it. And I guess for a podcast like this, it might be more appropriate to do an interview that lines up with the premiere of a movie, but this movie is really quite good, and um, it's very easily accessible online to, to watch. The film is about a man named David Huggins, who has painted his memories of his contact experiences, and a few of these paintings are included in the show notes for reference. Now, these images and his story are, are quite arresting. And I uh, give a heads up to the listener. There is a very powerful sexual element in these paintings and in David's story. Now, right at the very beginning of our interview, Brad said something that caught me a little off guard. It happened right in the very first few seconds. And what many listeners may not know is that beyond my owl books, I've also published a book on ultralight backpacking. And this came up. It was a little bit of a surprise for me, and it's a little bit funny. Um, I thought about editing it out, uh, but I kept it in. It actually would have been difficult to snip out where it was in the talk, so I kept it in. This was a wonderful interview, and it was recorded in June of 2019. Please enjoy. Brad, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Of course, and I'm a fan of your writing, so this is a pleasure. What do you know of my writing? Um, well, I know about your theme of the owls, and even before the, the UFO uh, world, I used to read your ultralight backpacking. Oh my goodness! Articles. There's a very <laughs> rare sub... I, I'm interrupting here, and we're going to get sidetracked a little bit, but there is a very narrow crossover between the two. I think there's probably five people in the whole world that have crossed over, and somehow <laughs> now I've met the fifth one. So thank you. Thank you. Of course. Hey, and I will also say I'm a big fan of your film. You directed a documentary called Love and Saucers, and it deals with a person I know. I actually have never met David. David Huggins and I talked on the phone a lot starting around 2008 or so. And uh, for the next few years, he would call me often and we would talk, you know, once a month or so. And we would have these long, powerful conversations. And I so do you remember how we met? Uh, no. Here's how we met. So what happened is I was online. I was looking at a uh, there was a little um teaser reel i think it showed up on facebook or something and it was like a trailer for your movie love and saucers about david huggins now we'll get into who he is in a moment here but he is a very i don't think i'm saying anything you don't know i would he is a very gentle soul he's had ufo contact experiences and they are extremely strange and they would be very easy to exploit so when i saw you were making a documentary i i i think i what i did is i wrote uh, uh, an email that said, you know, don't you dare do a mean-spirited documentary about David or I'm going to find you. And I rewrote it and said it and said basically the same thing in a much more polite way because I was genuinely like, oh, crap, this could be disastrous. So I sent you a letter and basically said, don't you dare exploit David Huggins. And you sent back a very thoughtful letter saying you would do nothing of the sort. Uh, I don't know how long it was, a year or so later, the documentary came out, and I was so taken and so relieved. 
I think if there was a one-word description for this documentary, I guess it would be compassionate. It's a very loving portrait of this gentle soul. Thank you. Yeah, and and I actually do remember um, the exchange now. And I think partly it's it's because you saw like a trailer or a teaser, and often um, even for documentaries that are very respectful, the trailers uh, tend to be a little more sensational or a lot more sensational than the actual movie. And and I understand if that because of course the trailer is going to start off with him losing his virginity to an extraterrestrial, which is the most sort of wild claim or one of them. Okay, here, let's just go right into the movie. So that that is, I think, I just watched it again last night. That is the very first line. Well, within the very first 20 seconds of the movie, David says that about himself. So go ahead and just fill fill everyone in on the, on the movie itself. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's how the movie starts. I wanted to start with sort of the most um, uh, out there statement in the film and then sort of then my challenge would be to work backwards and and sort of prove to the viewer uh, this guy is not crazy. You don't have to necessarily believe exactly word for word what he's saying, but you you have to at least acknowledge that he is he's a normal down to earth sort of a sweet and respected guy. And so when you realize that and then pair it with these very outlandish claims that he's saying um, that's the sort of cognitive dissonance that I wanted to create and really have people then start to question their own positions on on these things. So stepping back a little bit. So the film is is about the, the experiences in the life of this man, David Huggins, who's now, I think, 76 years old. And starting at the age of nine, he um, had encounters with what can be described as extraterrestrials. He doesn't necessarily go that far. Um, just otherworldly beings that have visited him for decades uh, since since the age of nine. And when he turned 17, those visits turned sexual. Um, and he he states that he, he did lose his virginity at 17 to one of the recurring extraterrestrial beings uh, and then had... Um, a lot of other sort of erotic encounters with them. They weren't the only type of encounters, but for, for some decades, they were the most um, apparent. And he, as a way to sort of cope with these experiences, um, he began to paint them. He was trained a little bit as, as a painter at the art students league in New York. And so he knows how to paint with oils and he's now done. I don't know. I maybe. 200 of these sort of amazing, surreal, off-putting paintings of his his chronicles with these these beings. Hey, I will um, I will add that I you know I've talked with him at length, and he doesn't want to sell those paintings. He's holding on to those. He loves those paintings. He's talked to me at length about this. We have um, I've helped him sell some now. So he oh oh he okay because I I think of this like. I don't want to say he's clinging to these, but I mean, he definitely, he definitely pours his heart out into these. Yeah. And, and one interesting note is that of the ones he sold, he's repainting them just so he, he still has them. Cause for him, they're memories. It's like his, his, his records of these experiences. So, and he was very reticent at first to sell the paintings. Um, I encouraged him. I didn't push him, but just, you know, said there's a lot of people interested in your work. Um, and you know, he's, 
on a pension. He works like once a week part time at this deli. He can definitely use some extra money. So I'm really glad that that people showed the interest and and started buying them. And and so the the sort of core of this movie, the core of the whole thing, is David sitting in his studio. He holds up a painting, and he talks about it. There's a little bit of cross-editing with some stock footage of, let's say, his youth in Georgia, and there's some rural images, and then his time in uh, New York City, and there's some images of New York City probably from the early 1960s and such. But the, I, I have to, and I have to just, I'm going to compliment you. I am. Uh, I am sort of of the era where I like am so annoyed by what would be modern documentary filmmaking <laughs> with all the cuts and zaps and edits and sound effects and and I just in essence I'm giving you a little uh, uh, like a, a hug here for for creating something that treated me the viewer as an adult and I just I am so grateful. Yeah, and that was you know very consciously done also just to present the story in a sober way. Um, the story itself is is for most people so bizarre that to then also add, you know, very postmodern filmmaking and editing uh, techniques to that would have, I think pushed it over the edge. And I think you see that, you know, way too much already with paranormal type subject matter. Absolutely. Yeah. So at the core of the movie, there's David and he goes step by step talking about his encounters beginning as a small boy and he holds up paintings and these paintings are, I will include some in the show notes and uh, on one level, you could say, like, you could take a step back, and he's not, like, a great artist in the skill, let's say. But I, there's a few images that I, I actually sent you a handful of them, probably I sent you three or four, that have such a powerful, I mean, they're as powerful as anything I've ever seen. I mean, the actual technique of the painting is, is there's technicians out there, or technical painters that could do a more uh, tight perfect job of capturing the image but i will say this man does a powerful beautiful job of capturing a mood yes and that's it's one of the many things that drew me to the film or to make the film was seeing so i heard his story before i saw the images and, and his story was enough you know to get me part of the way there but once i saw the images themselves um they weren't really available online i had to to order Farah's book of them um I really found them cinematic. Like you just look at, at one of those frames and they tell a whole story and yeah, there's mood, there's atmosphere, there's tension. I don't know how, how much all of that was his intention outright, but he, he's just a natural at capturing that. And it, it lays more credence to him having experienced something um, just because he, they, they really feel like memories. Yes, they feel like, you know what they feel like? They feel like dream memories in a way. They feel like, you know, I mean, obviously he's looking back. It's his own memories and whether he's romanticized them in a way, I guess he has. Because I've never heard a man say anything bad about his experiences. And um, I mean, for instance, there's one image of a young David. He looks like he's a boy of about 10 being floated upwards. I sent this to you. And he's surrounded by it looks like five or so aliens, these kind of these kind of uh, gray short beings in these blue jumpsuits. 
And there's this, the, the sense of floating is palpable. There's what seems to be a glowing saucer-shaped ship above them. And then looking down, you can see the roof of what either looks like his home or his barn. And, and that image alone uh, is so arresting to me. It captures the sensation of floating. Let me put it that way. Yeah, and his title for that painting is Floating Up. Um, and it's amazing. Like in the film, you can see it to some extent, all the close-ups of that painting, but it's, a, it's actually a very large painting. And I actually, he gave it to me. Oh, my so word. I have it. Yeah. And, and uh, Oh, I, I might, I, mean, I like, almost want to cry right now. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I had it on our, you know, above the little, my office slash guest room to creep out anyone who stayed over. But yeah, if you, it's very big. And if you, you look at it up close, there's, there's like, especially his face, there's so much emotion in there. It's like fear, but wonder, um, the way that they're all sort of grabbing his limbs. It's just, it's, yeah, it's one of the more powerful, uh, unsettling, I think as well, because I think we can imagine what it must've felt like or ourselves in that situation at like nine years old, eight or nine. Yes. Yes. It's unsettling. And then as he passes from boyhood into adulthood, then the sexual content comes in. Now I've had long, long conversations with him and I, I can't remember exactly, but I, I don't think the sex stuff ever came up at all during our conversations. It might have, but I just simply don't remember what I do remember very clearly was his emotional feelings of love for this one woman being this tall gray being named Crescent. And that was, he was much more interested talking about his emotional longing for this woman. Yeah. And he, you know, I pressed him on it and he, you know, went as far to say that he felt love for her. He said he didn't know if she felt the same back to him. He hoped so. But yeah, he, you know, considered that he was in a relationship with her for the period that it was happening. Um, and she was the most, definitely the most frequent visitor. She wasn't the only one that he had, um, sexual experiences with. There were a few other of the women. Um, but she was, yeah, definitely the most frequent and welcomed of them all. And so, I mean, just heads up, you are speaking to a very sophisticated listening audience. The audience yes. here at, at Whitley Strieber site. So, I mean, anyone listening on this site will be very well aware of the of there's a sexual thread that runs through the the UFO contact experience. Not everyone, obviously, and there's certainly the thread of um, what would be the term that's often used as hybridization or hybrids. But certainly, the the what seems like some sort of genetic program is in play, and people are often presented with babies or women are have memories of lost pregnancies, and oftentimes accompanied with with you know, vivid memories of, of a fetus being taken. And I've talked to a number of women like this, very tough, traumatic stuff. And it's yet his story. And I've talked to other women too, that feel this longing and this love for these children that they've never met. Yeah. Um, he, and he, he misses them. He talks about them like they're his own children would like to see them again. Um, but it's just not, you know, not a decision of his to make. I hate to do this, but I need to interrupt right now. And we are going to take a short commercial break for non-members. You'll hear some commercials, but for members, we'll be right back. 
We are back with Brad Abrahams, and we are talking about his documentary from the end of 2017, a documentary called Love and Saucers. Brad, just before the break, we were talking about this emotional content that is part of of David's, I guess it's just part of his, who he is. And and I said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Like, this is a very gentle, soft-spoken man. And his, like, you watch the first few minutes of the film, and you're like, this seems like this, you know, 70-year-old man kind of walking around his his apartment a little bit, just talking to the camera. And it doesn't take long before, I mean, I was just taken in. I would almost say the gentleness of his voice is almost hypnotic. Like, I've spoken to him at length, so I can't separate myself from knowing him. But for an outsider, I have to think that everyone would would recognize that in who this man is, who David Huggins is. Yeah, and that's what, what I experienced on the, the film festival circuit. Um, we got a, a different kind of audience because it's, it's sort of the, the film festival going audience. They're not necessarily like UFO fans. Uh, were interested in that uh, more so they would go to the film just because it sounds interesting and weird and so in the Q&A's afterwards uh, I often um, would hear from people that that they went into the film just thinking they would see something you know a portrayal of just this crazy or insane guy uh, talking about his UFO experiences um, and they'd be laughing the whole time but um, very quickly and definitely by the end they don't know what to think at all anymore because he obviously uh, isn't crazy and you know they're sort of re-examining had people re-examining their their beliefs um and and sort of their level of judgment after actually hearing him speak and, and getting to know him i think no one can really deny that um it's just sort of a fact of of his character. Oh, I, I agree. He's got a wonderful presence. He's got a mm-hmm. wonderful presence on camera and a wonderful voice. He's, I mean, yeah. this is sort of just a lilt of a Southern drawl from his childhood in, in Georgia. Um, you mentioned earlier Farah's book. Now, there's a there's a researcher. Um, her name is Farah Yerdoza. I think I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And I think it would have been around 2008 or 2009 she came out with a book called Love in an Alien Purgatory. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And I remember David did not like the name of the book. He said, I just wish it would have been called The Art of David Huggins, which yeah. is fair. But what he did think was wonderful about the book, and he said, you know, the, that when you open the book up, it's a slim little coffee table book. It's an art book with beautiful color images. And Farah interviewed David, and you can hear his um, his words, or you can read his words, and he describes each of these paintings, you know, one by one. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a marvelous, very visual like there's a lot of books out about experiencers, right? Their firsthand experiences, people who've had UFO contact experience. But this is this is this one is very very different, and the the paintings make it so haunting. Yes, yeah, totally. And he, I asked him why he didn't like that title, and he said one because it's sort of a reference to Christianity, just the idea of purgatory, which is something he he sort of staunchly. Uh, not religious uh, because of his his upbringing and sort of extreme fundamentalism in Georgia, which he reacted against. And then two, he said it never felt like a purgatory because it was it was you know mostly a positive experience. 
but he then again he loved you know Farah and and the book itself, just not the title. That's totally fair. That's he's not the only yeah. you know author who's had that happen from a publisher. Right. So um, there's one image in the movie. Uh, this is I think this is he must be living in New York at this point. And I sent it to you, and I and it's I'll describe it verbally. It's shown like basically his point of view from his bed. And it looks like there's an opening, a circular portal opening in the wall, and this tall woman, Crescent, who looks like she has an absurd kind of page boy wig on, this black wig on this chalky white, big-eyed woman. And she's kind of backlit by this, by this image, and there's also a tall praying mantis in the scene and several small greys. And it is beautifully lit. There's just this soft, gentle yellowish white glow coming from this round circle and that was another one that really struck me as as you know hauntingly powerful mm-hmm. same with me it's it's maybe my second favorite too you're kidding i'm i'm to- I totally i'm i'm batting a thousand here yeah <laughs> yeah and and also i love how he he captures that pov feeling too and even though it's supposed to be his bed in his small New York apartment, you, you feel like you're in this totally other world. Yeah. And he said, this was like almost a nightly occurrence, this sort of scene where he would, he'd either sort of wake up or it'd be before he went to bed or in the middle of the night, this, uh, he'd watch this portal open like an aperture and they would come through like, just like that. Now, if this happened every night, I mean, how to say this nicely, he would have, he would have, it would be, should be expected that he would be somehow traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know every night. I think sometimes if it happens once, if it happened once, you would have permission to be traumatized. So, yeah. 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 And, um, he, I mean, he does have the, when you meet him and you hear him, he, he does have these, this somewhat traumatized way of of talking about it i agree Um, i agree just because regardless if he says it was a positive experience this is not normal and um and yeah so that's why i think painting the act of painting was the way for him to sort of get these images and experiences out of his head and and his his way of doing therapy and and working through the the trauma of these experiences and he you know he wouldn't if you asked him would you say these were traumatizing he would say no um because i think to him that's a very extreme word but i think it's hard hard to really agree with that you have trauma with you know all lowercase letters let's say exactly yeah 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 but but part of the trauma too was his childhood was wasn't great um he had abusive alcoholic parents and very unstable home life, you know, and experiencing that, you know, all your childhood, um, it's going to make a, ma- a mark on anyone. And, and he shared that with me. Yeah. That, that when we talked, yeah, he said, mm-hmm. he said he was, it was time to go. And he, and, and so him and I shared something very similar. He was 19 years old and moved to New York city. And I did the same thing. I did it in 1980. And so I know what that, I mean, my childhood was wonderful. I lived in a perfectly idyllic, you know, suburb kind of leave it to beaver childhood, but, but I will tell you that the 
anyone moving to New York City at 19 is going to be blown away. And he talked a lot <laughs> that he talked a lot about that, how wonderful it was to to be in that city and um and not be the the weirdo for once, you know. As like, was I too. Yes, yeah. I was an art right. student and everything. Yeah, so. Yeah, you can imagine, you know, when he told his parents in rural Georgia that he wanted to be an artist, they were not at all accepting or understanding about what that even meant. Yes, and my parents were were very cautious too. I don't think they had any way to. Well, yeah. So anyway, this isn't my story, but so well. Um, as an art director, I'm going to say something very. I'm just going to have to. I am so glad you had those simple block letter titles. So they were very beautiful. I worked as for a long time as an art director, mostly doing advertising stuff, and the little captions just were very nicely art directed. And and once again, I'm going to go back. I'm going to thank you for treating me, the viewer, as a as a grown up. I just I need to compliment the subtleness of this film. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. It was is all intended that way. And there's one other subtle point there where there was a special effect that was, and I've seen it used in other documentaries, oftentimes with photographs, but there was, you would take his paintings and there was just a gentle kind of um, illusion of depth created by just a pan and how the foreground moved against the background. If it had been done any more, it would have been a little, it would have been too much. It was perfect. So I'm complimenting you on that too, that these, you took these paintings, these oil paintings, oftentimes close-ups of these paintings, and, and just created an illusion of depth using some sort of computer effect. And, and, uh, and I thought that worked great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what we ended up doing is uh, I had someone paint what's called a depth map for each painting. And it's sort of a grayscale representation of the depth in the painting. So foreground, midground, and background. And then when you plug that in, in After Effects, you can do just these really very subtle camera moves um, that it's it's just enough to give it interest without, you know, being too over the top or wonky seeming. Oh, it worked beautifully. It worked beautifully. For me, the most powerful moment in the film, the most touching moment in the film, was the scene that took place in the deli there in Hoboken where David makes sandwiches. And there's this sort of montage of him talking to the people in the neighborhood and them saying hi david and he'll say hello and then they'll he'll make a sandwich and they'll say thank you and he'll say you're welcome i don't know what it was but i'm almost like i'm getting little tingles on the back of my neck right now just talking about this i thought that was so gentle and so perfect i'm so glad that that was so beautiful that scene yeah and people yeah they love him the ones that know him and they have no idea about his experiences they just know him as the guy that makes their sandwiches. And I also, I didn't tell David I was coming in to film that day. It was sort of a surprise because I, I didn't want him to sort of be prepared or, or thinking about that. So it was all like totally genuine and, and uh, his usual sort of friendly interactions. And then there's the, you interviewed the, 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 the guy who runs the sandwich shop and he's this kind of, you know, yeah. Hoboken, the guy who runs the sandwich shop in Hoboken. That's exactly what he seemed like. And mm -hmm. he just was as, just as gracious as he could be about David. Yeah, yeah. He He's, you know, the salt of the earth, like first generation Italian immigrant. Um, and he was completely accepting. He's like, you know, he said he saw it. I believe he saw it. I haven't seen a, an astronaut or an alien, but I believe him. And that's, you know, that's all that matters. There's one painting, and I don't know if you could talk about this, where 
I think he's a, he's still a boy. He's living in Georgia, and his house it looked like a very modest house was up on cinder blocks or up on up on little stilts. It was up off the ground, and he was on one side of the house, and he's kind of looking under the house, and there are all these these legs seen with these matching blue coveralls. That that image was scary for me. Yeah, yeah, I I was also imagining myself in that situation too, and it's it's also just such a good detail like it's just in my mind it's not something one makes up seeing these legs under the house like that it just it really does seem like a memory as he's he's experienced something and that he's feel and and it's you sense that he like i don't think he can't help himself but to purge himself of these i mean not purge but maybe wrestle with his demons in a way through the act of painting exactly yeah Right. How has David been doing after the the movie? Uh, it's been good for him, actually. Um, he so he's never really had anyone to to talk to about this or talk with about this. He's not really met many people that know about his story, and so for him to like, you'll see in that one scene in the film at the end, which is the gallery show of his work. Um, that was like a a very positive experience for him because he it was his you know first solo show it was in new york city um and he got to meet all these people that were there to see his work and it was a it was a fairly young crowd too again not the usual type of people he interacts with and everyone was very positive and non-judgmental about the work and you could just see he was like beaming you know ear to ear smile um, everyone asking him questions like he's the man of the hour that. And plus he, he made it to a couple of the festival screenings, um, a big show they had of his in Philadelphia. And so it's, you know, at 75, the first time your, your work really being seen, your story being taken seriously. I think it's, it's been, you know, really good for him. Otherwise it would be total obscurity for the most part. Um, which I think he would still have been okay with. He's very private, but um, on the flip side, it's been, he's a very private person. Um, He's introverted and all the attention, you know, he's, people have found out his phone number. Um, They'll come sort of confront him at the deli and that's gotten to be a bit much. And he's sort of asked to, to not um, really make appearances anymore because of that uh and he's had a few people um say some disparaging thing like he's he's been invited on a podcast where they basically like just laughed at his story and him which was horrible uh so it's it's good and bad but i think mostly good well that that's wonderful to hear hey we have reached the 30 minute mark and this is the time we're going to say goodbye to the free dreamlanders and for the paying dreamlanders for the members we're going to jump right in and conclude this interview for the next half hour. Um, so stay tuned. We'll continue the interview in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Unseen. We are here with Brad Abrahams, and we're talking about his documentary from 2017, Love and Saucers. Um, just before the break, we talked about the um, gallery show that was put on for David Huggins, who is the subject of this documentary. And yes, I agree. It was very lovely. There's a scene where he's driving home in the car. It looks like you're in a taxi and you're taking him back to Hoboken and the camera's there in the car. And he was just as in his very soft-spoken way, he said something to the effect of, what a nice night. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, what's, what's also interesting is that David actually is, he's a hard person to interview because he's so uh, sort of short with his words. He, he's not a big talker, a lot of one word answers and you have to really sort of pull things out of him. And so I, I, I wanted more um, of a reaction about the night for him. And he was like, no, you know, it was just good. I really enjoyed it. That's it. Oh, and having, and knowing him, I, I would have expected nothing less. Yes. And he was just yeah. content and smiling. That's yeah, very lovely. Um, I heard from another interview that you did shortly after the after uh, the, the documentary came out with a friend of mine named Ryan Sprague on his uh, podcast, Somewhere in the Skies. And you said that David got back to you and that he heard from his friends, his, his, and they, and I think, I don't know how it came out, but did, like, they gave their approval. Is that right? Yeah. So this was, this was before David had even seen the movie. Yeah. He called me and said, Brad, I just wanted you to know, um, I had an encounter or like sort of like a dream encounter with the beings and they said they approved of the documentary. Um, and I <laughs> don't know quite how to how to uh, take that in, but I was happy because the last thing I want would be to piss off um, a group of extraterrestrials and start having them visit me in unpleasant ways. So I'm happy they enjoyed it. Good. Well, so I mean, so okay, I'm going to take a half a step, a couple steps back. Uh -huh. So I have um, here. I'll just tell a story here. I um, have spoken with Barbara Lamb. She's a hypnotherapist who does abduction research, and she's in California. She's a wonderful, sweet, charming lady. Um, and she told a story about. I think I'm doing this correctly. She had finished a book, and she was walking through her living room, just from one end of the house, and then she walked through it again, and then it was full daylight, and there was a giant reptilian being a giant reptile standing in her living room and she says she's very funny she's got this very she's a hypnotherapist so she talks in her hypnosis voice a lot and or she has this kind of soft voice and she said i'm the kind of person who wouldn't like a reptile right i don't like snakes or lizards <laughs> but i walked right up to this giant reptile and i held his hands and i and i asked him why aren't i afraid of you and i think the giant reptile telepathically said something to the effect of like, oh, I've been bred specifically so I won't frighten you. <laughs> and then the next thing she knows, she's standing in the living room. She's all alone and it's nighttime out. So it went from day to night, like click, just in an instant. So she lost a number of hours. She later went through hypnotherapy. Yes, hypnotherapy is a messy, controversial subject. But under hypnosis, she, she told of being taken aboard a craft and they basically... The beings basically said, we want to thank you so much. We approve of your book. So when I when I heard that story, you sharing that story earlier, my initial thought was, 
like, oh, I've heard that before, that, that the beings can will come back and will say they'll, they'll thank people basically for doing these books. Yeah. And I, I think especially was was interesting just because David hadn't seen it yet. Um, so it wasn't like it was his approval. Very interesting. And David has since seen it, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I believe so he um, you'll, you can see in the film he is a VHS kind of guy. Uh, he has like a collection of 2000 VHS tapes and, and only really watches things on VHS. And so I, I was trying to actually get a copy of the movie made onto VHS for him, but it's actually, it's very difficult now. Um, so I think the first time he saw it was at a, a festival that was nearby, um, seeing it on the big screen. And he, he, he really enjoyed it. He didn't have anything bad to say, no corrections, nothing. And, you know, there's some, somewhat controversial stuff and and um sensitive stuff with his ex-wife and everything but he he did not have any issues whatsoever and my understanding is he's on good terms with his ex-wife and she even i mean he doesn't he own a like a building of the whole building is that his yeah so it it's a, a very sort of rare living situation not one i've heard of before where you know he's been divorced for 20 years or more almost 30 years now um, with his ex-wife and yet they still live together. So I think they separated for a little, then they realize, you know, they still like each other, um, just non-romantically. And so they just live on different levels of the house. And I think together they own this, this old house in Hoboken, like this very skinny three story plus basement house. And on very amicable terms, like I, I watch them together and they're super friendly and yeah, it's it's odd, but it it works for them. Okay, I'm going to take a half a another half a step back. There is this sense that there's a, within the UFO lore, there's a sense. There's no way to prove this, obviously, that certain books, certain events are somehow staged, or somehow orchestrated or somehow brought onto the to the to our stage let's say for a purpose i can't speak for whitley but i would say that his the cover if nothing else the cover of the book communion felt in some way staged because that proved to be such a trigger for people mm-hmm. i've heard that so many times people saying like i saw the cover of communion and all these memories came flooding back or like i dropped my groceries in the grocery store when i saw it on the on the paperback shelf um so I would say, this is one way to look at it, I'm being very cautious, I'm choosing my words carefully, that the cover of Communion felt like it was staged by an outside source. What's your sense of you meeting David? I mean, this is a beautiful movie about an experience that that crosses over into other realms. I mean, do you feel like this was at all... I mean, how did it fall together? Let me put it that way. The actual production of the movie. Yeah. So originally I, I heard a little bit about David's story for the first time. I think it was like 2011 and it was on, I can't even remember what was a podcast. And they just very sort of offhandedly mentioned him as something ridiculous. So it was like too ridiculous, even for these like UFO people to even discuss. So that really sort of caught my attention as someone who likes weird things. Uh, so I, I started trying to do research on him and there was almost nothing on the internet about him at the time. 
except for Farrah's book, uh, which I, I bought, saw the images, was totally transfixed. I contacted her, and she gave me his home phone number. Uh, I sort of cold called David out of the blue and just said, hey, David, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I'd love to do some kind of story with you. I don't know what yet, but but I just want to know if you'd be interested or game for something. And he, you know, there was a pause and he said, you know, Brad, I think it's time. And so that started a series of very long calls with him, like hours long, where I would sort of record them and make notes. And then eventually I I visited him as sort of an experiment, um, filmed for a couple days, made a little short out of it. And that got interest for a few years down the line to make this into a feature. And excuse me, was that was that the teaser short that I would have seen? Yes, it had exactly. the it had the soundtrack. It was um, uh, Nature Boy by Nat King yes. Cole. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course I couldn't use that in the actual film because of I can't get the rights to something like that. But um, that was yeah, that was sort of the the teaser that I made when I actually I stayed at his house. I slept over um, for a weekend and and filmed with him. And I sort of sat on the footage for a while and eventually was like, I've got to make something out of this, try and get some interest in it really. Like, so I made that little two minute teaser and it really sort of exploded online at the time. Um, got like hundreds of thousands of views and I was like, Oh, people, you know, are actually interested and want to see something like this, like sort of to my surprise. So I got interest enough to, to help me make it into a short sort of feature length film. It's like almost 70, 70 minutes. Yeah. And then the rest is history. I will. So this is a year and a half ago in what I have seen in a year and a half in your movie would be one of them. And then since then there's been a handful. I think, honestly, I think they just made some money and I think people were willing to put up money to make a feature length documentary about about the UFO lore. I think they were popular. And and I'm seeing more and more of these in, in uh, Jeremy Corbell's films, I think, sort mm-hmm. of fall into that too. And so, I mean, you were right at the front of that wave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so one, one thing that's tying all those films together is this uh, distribution company called The Orchard. And not so much anymore, but at the time... Um, one of their acquisitions people, he's a big sort of UFO uh, phenomena fan. So he was sort of gobbling up these films if they, if they seemed good um, and, and distributing them. So the masses could see them. So I think that was part of, of how they, they made it into the zeitgeist a a few years ago too. Well, it's real. I think it's really happening. I mean, mm-hmm. I sense it. I yeah. mean, just as there it is, like it's on the crawl there on, on Netflix between, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, so what was impressive for me was to see uh, this movie on the, the iTunes crawl, you know, right between some comedian and some TV show. You know, there it was, this person who's had very powerful UFO contact experiences. iTunes is as mainstream as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. And as well, seeing Jeremy Corbel's films on Netflix and unacknowledged on Netflix. Um, it's it's weird, definitely, to to be seeing that. But that's it's also now commonplace for, you know, UFO stories to be front page um, New York Times. 
yes, we've, we've since we've jumped into that new era. There, yeah. And I have some very strong opinions on that, too. I think that there's real news <laughs> coming out. I just think the the puppet masters are feeding that news very cautiously, which is understandable. But yes, there was a um, just within the last couple of weeks, Stanton Friedman died. And I had the chance to meet him a couple times. And I heard him interviewed shortly after. I'm to- this is a total aside here. I had a chance to listen to him shortly after the 2017, which was right around the same time as your film. December 2017 was when the, you know, like a, a very level-headed article came out in the New York Times. And it talked about these sightings within the Navy as well as uh, the secret program within the Pentagon. Now, Stanton Friedman commented on that. I can't remember, but I heard him on a on a podcast, and he said very wisely, he said, somewhere someone flipped a switch, and I would have loved to have been in that room <laughs> and heard the conversation when that decision was made to flip that switch. And I agree with that. I think that this is, it didn't happen by accident that this ended up on the in the New York Times. No. No, I, I don't think it's all to do with just because, you know, Luis Elizondo decided it was time yes that's a great story this maverick Mm -hmm. you know guy but i think it's a little more nuanced than that and i would also say that so these two things are happening at once your movie is coming out or your movie came out in a very dry way um you know a sensationalistic subject treated unsensationalistically i think i said that right and others have followed and i guess the you know the new york times articles feel the same way it's a sensationalistic subject treated very level-headedly and this is for me who've who's had these kind of experiences and sort of you know like i've sort of given up trying to convince the mainstream to take any of this seriously i just put my stuff out in these little books and on a blog and stuff like that but i find that this is the tides are changing and your movie is a perfect example of that yeah i i, I do think though it's it's two different things in a way because all the main, the more mainstream coverage that's coming out is UFO sightings, um, and they have not leaped to abduction phenomena yet, which is that's a whole other sort of step and subject than just acknowledging that there are strange things in the sky to them, and they also have beings from another planet, and they're you know landing and taking people and doing weird things to them. Here's a question for you. What have, have you? What's your personal experiences? Why are you drawn to this subject? Yeah, I haven't had any, you know, supernatural or unexplainable experiences. Um, I'm just drawn to it from what it tells us about ourselves, or what it can tell us about ourselves, um, about consciousness, um, you know, our place in the universe. All of that is is what draws me to it, and uh, that it's the fringes of experience that tell us the most about ourselves. But it's the the fringes that get ignored um, and not taken seriously. So that's that's my motivation for trying to tell a story like this. Well, thank you, and I also say I would also say that. Yes, the fringes get ignored, but they also seep in to the to the popular consciousness. Yeah. So I have a feeling everyone has a probably incorrect idea of what UFO contact means, right? I mean, you could just go to a shopping mall and ask people randomly, like, oh, how would you define UFO abduction? And I bet you would get a pretty sophisticated answer from most people because it's out there. 
it's part of the the consciousness. And um, yes, to the Stars Academy ain't touching the UFO contact thing as yet. Who knows what the future will bring? But right, um, yeah. uh, but yes, yeah, so that was always the question about disclosure. You know, like, well, what if the president stands on the podium and you know says, you know, we're not alone in the universe, and the first person who raises his hand at the press conference says, what about all those people who say they've been abducted from their bedrooms? Uh-huh. You know. You know, I don't think I, I don't think the president would want to answer that question. Exactly. So, yeah. The music in this film. Oh, there was so it wasn't even music at all. I almost would be shy to call it music. It was just almost this like this vibrational, gentle tone that just kind of rung through the whole story. Yeah, it. Um, yeah, you can call it more like sound design. Um, and I worked with this guy in the Netherlands and he he's like a electronic musician um and he also lectures about world building at university in in the Netherlands and so he has this like sort of great grasp at how both sound and vision can create worlds and sort of immerse you into into a new place and he used that i think to great effect in a subtle way to get people into each of these scenes through this sort of otherworldly sound design that that permeates throughout it uh, it was it was very effective it was very effective it was it was not overpowering it was very subtle and um so was the editing complete and he created the soundtrack to match the visuals yeah for the most part yeah wow okay so very nicely done it was very beautiful thank you um at one point in the film, David tells a story. He was in New York, a young man in New York, and uh, it's done through a series of several paintings. And a car pulls up. Uh, there was a transit strike or something, and it was raining. And this car pulls up and gives him a ride. Very eerie. The lady in the car. There's close-ups of these paintings. And, and then he has a dream that night. And afterwards, after this dream, this very powerful dream, he bought flowers for Crescent and basically said, if you're real, I'm going to buy you flowers. Am I, am I getting the story correctly? Yeah. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. So he, there's this wonderful scene. He's smiling. He's sitting there in his studio and he's a little bit embarrassed. And he kind of says, I, I cleaned up my apartment. I cleaned it up. Like I was, like I was excited for a date. And I thought it was just such a, such a haunting detail to him to say that. And then the next morning he woke up, fully expecting he would have an encounter that night. The next morning he woke up and the flowers were gone. Yeah. And, and there was a accompanying set of paintings for that. Yeah. That was very, to be told through paintings, that was very beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, that's, it was those details like him being sort of embarrassed and, and thinking like he was going to have a date with something or someone from another dimension or, or solar system. Um, it was, it was funny and it was disarming, uh, and like sort of cute. And, and one of also the, the few experiences that sort of spilled into sort of more objectively into the real world. Because the flowers were gone the next day. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now for you, what's your favorite part of the movie? Let me put it that way. That's a simple question. Oh, um, Gosh, I I don't know. I may just be the at the very end, the gallery show, sort of tying it tying it all up with him. Um, 
is it's sort of the whole film with the exception of him in the deli is, is just him in his house and mostly in his studio or in his room. And it's very claustrophobic. And that's sort of the impression I get of his life too. Like he, he spends most of his time up there and most of his time inside. And so to finally just sort of like break out of that Hoboken house world into a place with a lot of people and him in the middle of it all felt, felt really nice. And again, I think was, was also like really good for him. And then, and that was staged in a way by, didn't you generate that or, or put that together? Yeah. We rented the gallery space. It was it's sort of a, a gallery known for rotating shows. And so we just rented it for the night, put up the paintings and sent out some emails, like a Facebook ad and things like that. And just hoped people would show up. And a lot of people did like, it was a really good turnout. We had people who were just sort of walking by, come in off the street, friends of friends. Um, some of David's friends came. It, it turned out really well. It would have been, yeah, it would have been very difficult to have that happen organically just because no one really knew of David enough to actually offer to have an art show for him. And how did you get um, Jeff Kripal and how did he show up in the film? Yeah, so I was sort of searching for some kind of outside voice. At, at first, I wanted that voice to be David's wife. Um, but she, she did not want to be involved in the film. And I didn't want to get sort of an outright skeptic that didn't know David because the whole point is you have to know him to have any kind of opinion on it. If you don't take him as a person into consideration, then it's sort of meaningless commentary, I think. And so I wasn't just going to get some random psychiatrist or what have you to comment on it. So I found just through searching, I found Jeff and he has such a unique point of view and comes from such a unique place um, to comment on the UFO phenomena. And he's both sympathetic, but also academic uh, and skeptical. Um, and he turned out to be the perfect person for this outside voice. And he, he had several conversations with David by phone. Um, so I, I could make sure they sort of got to know each other. And I really appreciated his point of view. I think it's, it makes sense. And not many other people are talking about abduction experience like he is, which for people that don't know, it's, it's that these types of experiences have been happening to humans for thousands of years. They just haven't been called alien abduction. You know, at first it was mystical experiences um, then it was religious experiences and now it's UFO experiences and, and that the content of these unexplainable things changes over time to the context of, of the, the era that we're in. And it makes a lot of sense. It, it still is not saying what the experiences are, just that it's not a new thing. Um, and it's a very human experience. And I will also add that I know Jeff and I've read much of his work and he, he is his, the core of his study in a way is the eroticism mm -hmm. of these experiences, you know, whether they be yeah, exactly. Christian experiences or, or Eastern experiences. And then, and this is, this is something that doesn't get talked about often. You go to a UFO conference and whatever, you're on your second glass of wine at the bar and you're going to hear <laughs> some stories. <laughs> so, so, um, and I, and I, uh, how to say this? Jeff Kripal is one of my heroes in this realm. 
And um, so they, when he, when he sh- I had no idea he was going to show up on the screen. All of a sudden, there he is. And he was the perfect person to. And he was he kind of like he did play a little bit of like uh, uh, the the therapist in a way by sort of pointing out that the wall of horror movies, yeah, you know, is his way of like working through his demons in a way. Mm-hmm. And and he brought up the conundrum that is, um, you know, is it this sort of in the fifties this wave of science fiction and alien uh, focused films, is that what sort of was the seed for everyone's imagery of alien abductions or were people's images of alien abductions, the seed for all these movies and books that came out at the time. And, and for him, it's a bit of both. It's not a either, or it's sort of a cycle that feeds into itself. I think there was a conversation. I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to do this poorly, but there was a conversation I think it was between Jeff Kripal and Whitley Strieber who went on to write a book together called The Supernatural. And uh, do you have that book? I don't have it, but I I know about it. Oh, you got you should you should yes. <laughs> so yeah, I I want to read it. And I I don't I think it was before this that, that Jeff Kripal brings up exactly that example, basically saying that you know our science fiction has shaped our comprehension of of the visitor experience, and you know what can we do about that. And without skipping a beat, Whitley Strieber said, we need to make better science fiction movies. Oh, that's yeah, so great. Which was a great answer. <laughs> so, yes. And I and I would take that one step further. It's like there are a handful, count them on the fingers of one hand, like very level-headed, thoughtful documentaries about the UFO contact experiences. Yours is one of them. I would follow that up. We need more films like this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying it from a perfectly selfish point of view because of my my own experiences. And like, I want this story to be told in a thoughtful, I use the term, first words out of my mouth when I started this interview, compassionate. I want a thoughtful, compassionate. I keep on going back to the word story, right? I mean, stories need to be told. I want the story of these experiences to be thoughtful and compassionate, even though they might be fraught with fears and and unanswerable questions. But I would like to see the overall story be turned into something a little more gentle and a little more compassionate than the than the late night cable TV, you know, exploitation documentaries that defined the last 25 years. There's that. And then I think there's also, you know, the interview or the the documentary filmmakers themselves being maybe too close to the subject matter sometimes, too. And if there isn't you know, some level of objectivity and impartiality, then it's, it's never really going to be taken seriously. If you're just, you know, sort of a fan, fanboy or fangirl for the subject that you're, you're making a movie on. Or if you're an, an experience yourself, you know? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's next for you? Yeah. So a few projects in the pipeline. One is a feature length documentary on cryptozoologists so on on the people that actually go and study these hidden and unknown animals. Uh, so it's not necessarily like the, the usual, which is like a, a film about a certain monster or about trying to find Bigfoot. Um, it's about sort of these character studies of the people that that actually devote their lives to to the study of these creatures. Um, so that's one. I have a a sort of science documentary that's been in the works for a while. That's going to be released episodically. I'm working on a narrative like fiction project 
uh, like a fun short film. That's a, a dark comedy horror film about conspiracy theories. And then um, the newest thing in the works is a potential series on folklore, some bizarre folklore from around the world. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So a lot going on. And then in the middle of all that, you know, trying to make a living with actual paying work. (laughs) (laughs) I've given up on that at this point. (laughs) um, Hey, thanks so much. This has been a delight. Now, if folks want to get a hold of you or watch the film, what do they do? Uh, Two things they can, for the film, they can go to love and saucers.com and that links all the different ways you can see it. If you're an Amazon prime member, it's free. That's the easiest way to watch it. And then if you want to see my other work, it's just my name, bradabrahams.net. Thank you so much. This has been a delight. Yeah, thank you too. Enjoyed it. Hey, this is Mike. I am chiming in at the end here after the editing. I'm going to point out something. Brad is Canadian, and I grew up on the Canadian border. I'm living on the Canadian border right now. Canadians are really wonderful, gentle people. I'm simplifying this greatly. And this is a wonderful, gentle movie. And I can't help but think, I, I talked about this privately with Brad, and we laughed a little bit when I, when I said as much. And I feel it's true, but this, this is a sort of Canadian movie, right? It's a, it's a movie about a gentle, soft-spoken guy. And it's just, the, the subject is so strange and so unsettling but the movie itself is so gentle and pleasant. So, yes, thank you, Canada. And thank you, Brad. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.